What's up, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of Big Digital Energy. This week we got Mark Myers, we got Sean, and we got Kirk. Kirk's still joining us remotely over in Nantucket. And then I don't know where, I don't know where Chuck's I think, at. Is Chuck on a runway in Milan modeling the latest in, <laughs> in, in, in girl, girlfriend approved fashions? What Chuck is trying to bring the ripped jeans and hoodies look to <laughs> Italy. <laughs> I actually think he's at the uh, the national or the international prostate conference because <laughs> the doctors are really impressed with his the his ability to talk about and show his prostate to others. <laughs> If this show's ever going to get taken seriously, we have to drop the prostate jokes on, on Chuck. <laughs> PSA is for no, PSA. No, actually, that's why people tune in, actually. Note to self, don't in. ever miss the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mark, what do we got on the uh, on the docket today? What's our first story? Well, we've, we've been out for a week, so I, I think what happened last week and continues today on the oil macro side and how it relates to the equities. Uh, Sean and I had been going back a little bit um, over the weekend and this morning. And, um, you know, I asked him if he thought it was a pivot. You know, we've been talking about this markets and show me as it relates to energy equities. Uh, and it needs to see definitive evidence that inventories are drawing that demand's okay. I don't know that we'd call it a pivot, but you're, you're seeing some, at least constructive results out of the first couple of bellwethers that have either pre-released in right. the case of Chevron and Sl Schlumberger, which reported last Friday. So yeah. Sean, you had some, you had some comments on that. Yeah. I think, look, I think as we go into the second half of the year, it was just a timing conversation as it related to global inventories rebalancing and China came out a lot slower than everybody expected. There was a lot of concerns about recession. The Saudis made some very proactive cuts in terms of the million barrels a day, and they're going to continue to do that. But, you know, I don't think it's a pivot yet because they're just, there's still a healthy amount of anxiety about what does energy look like over the next, you know, 12 to 18 to 24 months. What I said to Mark was if you look at fund flows over the course of the last 12 months, $24 billion has gone into tech, $20 billion has come out of energy. Dang. And so that that really accelerated in January of this year, and to me, it just seems like people are pairing at the at the fringes and trying to to move reposition more into energy versus where they were before. The fun flows from energy to tech are something that are interesting to me. I was talking to a top tier VC fund the other day, and they were talking about how from a macro perspective, they're actually bullish on energy mm -hmm. and want to be investing in energy tech companies instead of, you know, your traditional Silicon Valley tech companies. And so I thought that was interesting to hear how there may be a shift in private markets and early stage venture capital, and it may start flowing a different way eventually. That is, to me, that is one of the most attractive opportunities out there. Like you talk about a lot with energy technology and as, as these companies continue to consolidate, they're going to try to do and will continue to do more and more to extract as much margin per molecule. That's what it's all about. And what energy companies have been able to do, and it's one of our core theses in, in our firm, but what energy companies are trying to do is to say, look, I don't have to be reactive to commodity prices every day anymore. I've got a relatively religious capital discipline model 
I'm living off of some free cash flow. Some periods it's going to be higher. Some periods it's going to be lower. All that to say, it's enabling them to go in and do things that they've never been able to do before with respect to technology and automation or improvement of their own systems. So I think that if you can get in there and start allocating capital and creating things that have commerciality and scalability to improve the carbon footprint of traditional energy, it's going to go a long way in terms of that actual absolute absolute move to uh, lowering our carbon intensity. So I think yeah. it's, it's a huge opportunity. Mark, you asked me before we got on the show if I had anything to talk about, and I said no, but I actually do. <laughs> Always got something to talk about. But <laughs> the floor is yours. Um, so I saw this quote, and I know, I think Kirk liked my tweet because I tweeted it out, but there was a story in Bloomberg um, from the CEO of Orsted, and they said capital costs and prices for uh, turbines, cables, and other equipment have gone up sharply. And this means that the price of renewable energy regret- regrettably must come up temporarily after years of steep decline. And mm-hmm. that just what you're talking about kind of triggered a catalyst for me to think about that because, you know, there's, like you said, a lot of unknown in what energy looks like over the next several years. And the past several years, I've had a ton of people on Twitter telling me that um, essentially any inflation and material costs doesn't matter in renewables. And it goes against basic economic principle that if build costs goes up, right, energy prices have to go up as well. And it's to the point of like gaslighting where these people are like, no, no, it doesn't matter. I'm like, how can it not matter when, you know, the price of natural gas is going up, the price of diesel is going up, the price of metals are going up, and that affects the entire supply chain. And I think people's argument is, oh, well, once you build a renewable asset, you know, it's good for 25 years. One, I think that, you know, that that's a little bit questionable if you're getting 25-year lifespan. I mean, not an oil and gas project doesn't last that right. long. But. And, yeah. See, <laughs> and, and Siemens came out a couple of weeks ago, and they actually had to revise their forecast down because they're seeing billions of dollars of incremental costs that they have to incur now on an annual basis just from a maintenance perspective. Did y'all see that video with the director of Siemens on Project Veritas? Did no. y'all see this? So y'all know Project Veritas, yeah. the one that does all those undercover yeah. interviews. Yeah. Well, this guy's like, yeah. he's a director or some you know equivalent position at Siemens, and he's talking about how ESG is just a grift. And he's like, if you look at where we really make our money, it's in gas turbines and things of this nature. He's like, but you know, you play into the ESG thing because you have to. And I one, I thought it was interesting that Project Veritas is doing something. Based focused on like energy, uh, um, because you know they're usually like very political, um, pharma, yeah, pharma. That was the big like Twitter, they were you know doing it with Twitter, but um, yeah, so I saw that, and then there was another, there was another renewable developer that pulled out of a project, and I think they had to pay like a 40 million dollar, yeah, Vattenfall. So, Mm -hmm. so, so last week, Vattenfall basically stopped their project in uh, um off of the new coast of the uk citing that there's a 40 percent rise in cost of the project and um and basically their their investment it's a 1.4 gigawatt project um they're halting an investment that's between 10 and 11 billion dollars and they're saying the costs are just um out of control and developers said for months of projects with low locked-in electricity prices have become uneconomic. 
because of the price of wind turbines and the supply chain problems in the wake of the Ukraine war. But really, we know that these costs are going up off the board, and that's um, and, and these, these are, developers are are bidding for very low electricity prices because the government's running these auctions and they're just not economic. And, and these are so these something are, has to break. These are direct items of inflation impacting results right. today. Yeah, in the conversation, you sent me an article shortly before the show about it really gets at the full cycle cost Correct. and the whole levelized cost discussion. There's a study in Australia about some arbitrary cutoff of all of the very necessary thing. They call it firming power. We call it available dispatchable thermal power, obviously uh, transmission and grid upgrades that are billions and billions of dollars Anything up to 2030, those get put in the sunk cost bucket, otherwise otherwise known as you should have known better than to make those investments. Mm-hmm. So all that capital is on you. Well, in the regulated utility world, all that capital is in a rate base, and the rate payers are guaranteed mm-hmm. a rate of return. Well, and and take it a step further, right? You think about you think about the incremental costs, and I'm not trying to bash on wind, right? But that's not that's not the agenda here, but. Where I where I get tripped up here is when you look at the full cycle environmental impact and the full the the full cycle life of wind turbines coming from hydrocarbons they're not recyclable the maintenance that goes along with them you start talking about the economic ramifications well if you have something if your gearbox goes down and you have to replace that even though it has a twenty year useful life. Is that maintenance capex or is it an operating cost? It's an operating cost. Mm-hmm. And so that means that your return on investment should be going that much lower because that's a direct impact to your operating cost. Yeah. And it's um and you know, another quote that that I thought was interesting. We're talking about Europe, like the UK versus the US. One of the things that I think gets lost on people is when you think about renewable technologies in the like wind or solar, if you will, in Europe and the costs, there's a they have a higher threshold for pain because their energy costs were already so much higher than they are in the US. Right. The US is well endowed with natural gas and coal. So our energy prices are historically significantly lower than mm-hmm. what you would see for renewable. And the notion that all of a sudden it's okay to take 20 cents a gig a kilowatt hour and embed it into a environment where you can get 10 or 11 cents a kilowatt hour no one's going to like that right and so it's it but it speaks to the value of having resources in place and you've got to understand that that economic cost to the consumer well i think you know sean you said we're not bashing wind or solar which is a i want to make clear you know not just biasly being an oil and gas boy here that's bashing renewables but all the things that we've been talking about for the last few years are starting to see come to fruition. And I think what's interesting is, you know, everyone, even, you know, Skelly got up on stage at Fuse and said, hey, if you think that 100% of electricity is going to come from renewables, you're out of your mind. Right. I mean, that's the OG when it right. comes to right. developing wind and uh, solar assets. And I think a lot of people think that renewable asset generation is going to continue to increase at a linear pace. But if you really think about it, they're attacking all the low hanging fruit Mm -hmm. and it only gets harder over time to find economic projects. And then on top of that, rising costs with inflation, 
what you're talking about with the gearboxes. I think that um, the renewable industry is really going to learn some painful lessons that oil and gas learned about replacement costs right. and trying to, you know, once you start hitting those 20, 25 year marks, now you're having to replace and try to just keep baseline production. Mm -hmm. And those are all the things that you talk about now. And it's easy to ignore them and and you know say that they don't matter but then when they start happening and i just think that it's crazy to see some of these big projects getting pulled offline because it's a lot faster than i anticipated and so you might start seeing a slowdown of penetration of renewables well, in the yeah, market because there's a the, the, we have a lot of supply there's i mean there's a there's a lot of generation supply that's been created whether it's wind or solar but we still can't fit it into the grid mm -hmm. so like, let's talk about the like the yeah. relevance of that, right? How much more? I've had this conversation with um, a guy who does elect, um, electricity power contracting this morning. He said, "You've got plenty of supply. We we just can't get it into the grid, and it's intermittent." So, what, as I think about and and as I think about the the evolution of energy here on a go forward basis, you know, we're talking about wind and solar now in terms of clean tech. That's the that's the euphemism, but. It's really battery technology and smart grid technology and things like that. They're going to truly move the needle. And that what what those things will enable you to do is to utilize a lot less of a renewable footprint, like a solar footprint, because you'll be able to store power over a period of time. In five years, we might not even be talking about some of these. Yeah, we've talked about this before, about the major queuing problem of at least the U.S. grid. And I don't have we have that data. We never posted it, but it comes from Wall Street Journal and someone else. I think Bloomberg posted a, a few data stats as well. You're absolutely right about that. We have plenty of supply. Um, back in the days when I was at the big uh, oil major it was interesting watching our offshore wind teams bid for projects because, you know, economics has to drive the equation. Right. But what I've learned from working in sort of big, large companies is that you always want to win the bid with the lowest bid, and then you figure out how to claw back money. And I think what these developers have been trying to do is claw back incentives and subsidies. And, and those incentives and subsidies are just not there. In fact, the CEO of Dong Energy um, sorry, Orsted. Um, I don't know how many people remember it used to be called Dong Energy, but Orsted <laughs> says it's inconceivable that UK projects weren't struggling. Everyone knows that it's sort of a everyone's bidding for this low cost of energy, but it, mm -hmm. but the, but the math and the expenses uh, don't justify it. One one of the fundamentals to all this and bringing up batteries being really the key and providing the storage foundation is that, and we've talked about this as well. Their fundamental building blocks, uh, in particularly in a couple areas like nickel and copper, are facing a you know real inflection in demand. Right. And what we've seen, at least from from existing operations worldwide, is a consistent drumbeat of degrading ore quality, which then portends more <clears throat> intensity of mm -hmm. digging, processing, transporting, et cetera. We got to dig more stuff up for the same kind of yield. So. You know, it's it's all connected, and it all has a an inflationary uh, dynamic related to it, and so just kind of eyes wide open there. And and bring that right back to the point that Colin made earlier was it, that's where these VC firms, I think some of these energy tech firms, can do a lot and make a lot of money. Is you keep adding and adding and adding, if they can figure out a way to make what we have that much more efficient, 
and optimize what are the existing systems, that's the home run, right? Because there is a lot of energy. There's a lot of wasted heat. There's a lot of wasted electricity. Your point, like we're never going to be a hundred percent electric or if you will, or renewable, however you want to find because you need hydrocarbons to make the lights, to turn them on. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, so this, but it's that it's the improvement in efficiency. It's that that's where I think there's a lot of, that's a real growth area for energy as an industry and the equities on a go forward basis. Yeah. So I think it's, but it's anyone will tell you, any executive will tell you it's, is it scalable and is it commercial? And that's the hardest thing to take something from the lab and make it scalable and commercial where you can actually utilize it. Mm hmm. hundred percent. Are you just looking at me, Mark? <laughs> Mark did I, did Mark I steal side. your thunder? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Okay. Mark side eyes me like I'm, I, I, I brought you as the or... thunder. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there is a, there is this other tweet that I saw in this was two weeks ago, but we missed last week's show. So I get to bring it up, but this guy had, uh, he tweeted something along the lines. I was looking for it on my phone, but I can't find it. But he tweeted something along the lines like, how bad would it be if we had intermittent blackouts um, if we wanted to be on all renewables and get rid of hydrocarbons? And I was up at like Friday at 10 p.m. and like wrote this long tweet about it. And I'm like, I have nothing better to do with my life than tweet about energy policy on a Friday night. But it's something that's important to talk about because, you know, for a long time, I've talked about the cost of renewables and people always talk about, hey, renewables are cheaper compared to oil and gas. But the problem is, is that they only look at it on a power generation basis. So they look at it at the asset itself, but then Mm -hmm. they don't take into account for things like um, battery um, storage or backup nat gas generation. So you don't have this whole inclusive end-to-end um, cost for what it costs a consumer to have, and then you have the lost, you have the you have the electricity lost on the line loss from transmission, yeah, like age transition yeah. grids, yeah. yeah. And so you know, I bring that up sometimes, and always the default response is like, "Oh, okay, well, I understand that, but oil and gas should have to account for the negative uh, consequences of climate change that it costs," and so. You had these phantom costs, these phantom accounting of yeah. we want you to de- add additional cost to oil and gas production to account for any damage to the environment or climate. On the flip side, this guy's idea is like, hey, what if we get off oil and gas and have 100% renewables, but we're going to have intermittent blackouts? My thing is, if that's the case, then you need to account for you know, the, the degradation in reliability for energy and i made a little quip at esg at the end of that it was like you know he's not the only letter in esg yes social right. and, and governance too and you know you can't you can't base power systems and energy systems around hey are we all right with receding in right. our quality of yeah. life and, yeah this this was this past weekend or leading into the weekend, the LA Times had a big piece on, you know, should we just should we just live with with more blackouts or do without in yeah. order to solve climate change? <clears throat> and so you look at the I mean, really I the, love I the love acute practical negatives sort of, of, um, of turning off power in the midst of a heat wave. 
uh, especially for elderly people. For example, intermittency does have immediate life and death uh, mm-hmm. without backup generation has immediate life and death type of implications. There's so, 3 billion people in the world that just want to have the option. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that. Uh, well, there's, there's, there's almost a billion people that don't have electricity. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take that into consideration. But I have a question for you guys. To I've, I asked this question uh, this week, of uh, last week, actually, of someone that asked me about living with blackouts. And I said, do you have a generator? And they said, yes. I said, exactly. <laughs> it seems that you should ask everyone that says we, sh- we can live with blackouts on whether they have a generator. Because <laughs> a many times, sense. whether it's a generator or they – or they live in a climate like, for instance, where I live right now, where you don't need a lot of electricity because it feels pretty good outside. Yeah. Of course, you know, you live off your cell phone for, you know, I guess you wait until you get power back so you can uh, use your cell phone again. But yeah. but the reality is it's interesting. It's only for like the top 1% that, that, that tend to talk about these crazy radical ideas when most of the world is just trying to, you know find food and um, raise your family. Yeah. To be fair, this guy that asked that question, I think was a journalist and he got ratioed pretty hard from both sides, not just oil and gas, but from, from, from Collins renewables followers. Side. Yeah. Yeah. From renewables too. It's just like, this is <laughs> a stupid question. Even if it's just uh, theoretical, um, it's, it's not a possibility. So anyways, lots of, you know, I always count on Twitter to bring in some good humor, stupid, stupidity. To the show so we're we're starting to see hey i'd like to throw in a go ahead guys i was i had i was reading about we we're talking about q2 earnings and i was reading about how chevron has waived the mandatory age requirement for the ceo from 65 because mike worth is 63 right and i realized that they've been others have been doing this jp morgan offered Jamie Diamond, fifty million in retention bonus, uh, and he's sixty-seven. Um, Bank of America chief Brian Moynihan, sixty-three. Black BlackRock's boss Larry Fink, seventy. Warren Buffett's ninety-two. Um, any thoughts about sort of are we? We talked about this great generational crew change in oil and gas. Is it going to continue to grow even worse as we continue to let? sort of the old guard continue to run the companies. What what do you guys think on the equity, you equity analysts? Well, we're, we're just following the trend of the demographics of our elected leadership at the national level, especially, right? <laughs> Congress has gotten a lot older. Certainly the administration is, is up there as well. Um, I, I do think in, in one of the first podcasts I heard you on Kirk, you talked about uh, coming from an environment where, uh, upward mobility was, you know, pretty unfettered and promotions and opportunity uh, accrued pretty quickly. And that just has not historically been the case in oil and gas. I certainly think the messaging of these things, like extending the tenures of of CEOs past uh, mandatory or, or statutory retirement age, statutory in terms of their own policies and regulations, is a it's certainly a signal, um, but I, I think it's going to just have to happen or the industry, uh, because of the things that Sean talked about earlier in terms of deployment of technology and getting better through digital and, and, and data and technology, 
is going to have to have that that generational turnover in terms of not just the the doing mm-hmm. roles but also the decision making roles. Well, and and Mike Worth is an exceptional CEO, right? Yeah. And and Mike yeah. Worth has taken Chevron and done a lot over the last five to seven years. I mean, he was one of the very first early adopters of understanding governance, the G part, which is what got the energy into, into trouble. Like They were one of the first movers in terms of trying to figure out executive compensation relative to returns. Um, that goes to the back to the days of a former mentor of mine, um, Doug Terrison, who ran the pledge. But he's done an amazing job with Chevron. And so to me, it speaks to if you've got the talent, you keep them around. And he's still very capable. It's a mandatory or it's an arbitrary age. And it, it if he's willing to do it for a few more years, then then you keep him and you hopefully build up a bench behind him. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very case by case basis. And I don't know that it's a trend per se, other than the challenge of that next level of leadership and energy, because there's going to be a huge gap here over the course of the next few number of years where we just don't have the the depth of, of resource that we used to because labor's, labor remains a huge issue. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, you're starting to see that issue. We've been talking about great crew change for 15 years now. Right. Um, but never seems actually, to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you actually see it starting to, to, to come into effect. So Mark, did you, uh, the, in this episode real quick, we're getting a little long in tooth here. Did you, uh, have a finger of the week? You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tease something up and we didn't get to a couple of things, but we are, we are running a bit long. And bear with me. Uh, we're going to bring Kirk back in <laughs> to uh, his his expert perch as uh, as golf commentator uh, on the heels of yet another major. In fact, the the fourth major since they rearranged the calendar. I'm not mistaken, Kirk. I mean, it is the last major of the year, but it is the original major, and in fact. The Open Championship, which has traditionally been played in Scotland and it has been in Ireland and England a few times. In this case, it took place in Hoylake, England. Um, it started, its first major championship was was um, was done before Abraham Lincoln was, um, was the president of the United States. So it's been around for a long time. This year, Brian Harmon uh, won, our uh, great lefty American. But usually the Brits are very um, arrogant about how the rest of the world, especially us Americans, are, are not classy, if you will. But in this case, in the Open, um, the fans at Hoylake were very rude to Brian Harmon. Um, they... they They said a lot of derogatory things to Brian and they started tracking, even on TV, the broadcast tracking how many times he waggled. The funny thing is, is he just totally obliterated the field. It wasn't even a challenge, Uh, but Brian used that to an advantage, but it was really disappointing to see these classy fans really were class less in this case. And, And it really, I thought, put a blemish on the open championship. And, and, and one of the more outspoken English 
tour players and champions, Ian Poulter, who's also known for a little sartorial uh, extreme. Who lives in Florida, but let's not right. say anything about that. <clears throat> but he tweeted out this morning, Brian Harmon, take a bow. What a class week. For all those that gave him shit from the stands and waggle meters on TV and anyone else undermining his performance, you should be ashamed. He outplayed the very best. Now respect him for that. Waggle away, Brian. What is a waggle? Thank you for asking. <laughs> it's kind of what YL Salon's doing at Shell. He's waggling his way and taking all the dead weight off the company. Uh, <laughs> you didn't have, re- you didn't have to relate it back to energy, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I just throw that in. Show us a it's, ba- it's basically what Barons did this weekend. We're going to bring this full cycle with uh, if Barons had their cover story it's, was about wind. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about wind power or this article was it was not rah rah. And I think one of the things that I'm seeing here is the people are waggling away the superficiality, mm-hmm. and they are starting to become a lot more. At least aware, if not knowledgeable, yeah. about that returns on and capital matter, yeah. and that none of this is going to work without a real viable business model. Yeah, and on the other side of that, to in the south, I don't know if y'all saw the Houston Chronicle from Friday, I believe, but front page was about abandoned orphan wells in Texas mm-hmm. leaking, and so on the other side of that, you have Texas large newspapers that are starting to. I want to say attack the oil and gas industry, but hold it accountable, which I think well, is, a, yeah. I personally think is a good thing um, for I us mean, as the, citizens. The TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, has been regulating everything in this space for a long time, and they have pretty strict standards. So I'm not, I don't, I think that's a lot of hype. Well, there's having dealt with the TCEQ myself. Um, I can tell you there is a problem. I mean, there is then that it's, it's the, uh, it's the abandoned wells that are supposed to be plugged and abandoned. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are way, and they just, they don't get plugged and abandoned or they're, they're not done uh, as effectively as they can, mm-hmm. can be. And so I don't know the order of magnitude of how much hyperbole is in, is in that particular story or not, but that's just one of those things that is low hanging fruit for the industry to do, to improve their, their footprint. And, um, I know a company down here that is signed some very interesting contracts to do just this. They're going in and making sure that over the long term, companies they can remove that P and A liability at the at the at the early stages of the well life, and that way you know that it's going to be. Yeah, Tony plus. Sanchez is doing that. Tony Sanchez is doing it. yeah, yeah, next which I yeah. actually think is a really good idea. You know, love or hate Tony Sanchez, I think the idea is actually good. Yeah. Because they're treating it like it's an insurance company, and essentially exactly. they go to an EMP, and EMP pays them a premium throughout the lifespan of this of this well. And then when they want to P and A it, they just assign the well over to Tony's company, and they'll take care of the plug and abandonment and take the liability from them. And during that, you know, the, that whole course, they're taking the premiums and you know getting a getting a return on it. Mm-hmm. However, you know, they're investing that, but I actually think that that's a pretty clever idea. Awesome. And, and there's, there's a spectrum of mitigation things that the industry can and should be doing Correct. much more proactively and much more aggressively. We've talked about routine flaring, which to me is somewhat of an oxymoron. 
Fugitive Methane, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Wellbore Abandonment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, there, are, there are controllable elements in Scope 1 yeah. as well, just generally. So um, a lot of distracted time spent engaging in a political debate on things that will never get resolved, yeah. uh, like Scope 3. Yeah. Or Which getting out of your scam. skis and spending time and money on putting together strategies, programs, and policies only to disappoint, with, which then further reduces your credibility when yeah. you have to backtrack those things. Well, yeah. and, and at some point, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but to carry off of that, I read something this morning on um, Bloomberg New Energy, and there was a lot of, there's been a lot of conversations about solar panels, solar, like domestically manufactured solar facilities, how it's, it's the way to go and this that, and the other thing. And it, there's been a lot of money thrown into that. The challenge, though, is that the Chinese, in particular, are able to get those costs significantly lower than what even these domestic companies can do with the subsidies. Mm-hmm. So you're spending all of this money in an industry domestically where you're still going to get run over by the low-cost supplier from an, from another market, who, by the way, has attractive logistical access to a lot of the minerals that Mark was referencing that you need for processing all these things. Yeah. So it's throw good money after good, not good money after bad. Solve yeah. the problems. Yeah. And and I wonder what their cost of energy to produce is. Right. <laughs> using all those coal yeah, plants. Yeah, using all the coal building. plants. Right. All right, guys. Uh, solid show. Sean, appreciate you joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Kirk, appreciate you calling in, taking time away from your surfing. Uh, we will be back next week. If you enjoyed the show today, please share it with a friend, share it on LinkedIn, share it on Twitter. We always appreciate the messages that we get from y'all and the feedback and comments. We will catch y'all next week.